0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the future's markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital-efficient than other automated market-makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com slash AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Simon, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show with me.
1: Thanks for having me, Leslie. Pleased to be here.
0: Simon, I hear you have just come back from Lisbon, as have a lot of other crypto people over from ETH Lisbon. How was that event What was the vibe like there in Portugal? Give me the download on that.
1: I've never been to Portugal. And, you know, you hear a lot of people heading down there lately with the, the new tax rules and that sort of thing that they've introduced to incentivize people to go on down there. I think it's a really interesting country. You definitely get the sense, though, that you're really on the edge of Europe. You know, it feels a little bit like Greece in some ways. What I found most surprising is that it's actually really hard to get around. It's like, this rabbit warren of like tiny streets and stuff. You're getting run over by cars all the time. Bicycles are just not possible because it's too steep. You know, so coming from Berlin, where it's like absolutely flat and you can, the streets are super right. wide and everything else, it was a bit of a, a shock to the system, but cool city. And um, the event itself, I didn't go to ETH Lisbon, the hackathon. I, I don't think I could do a hackathon again. I did go to LizCon, though, in the in the days prior and also attended a Fun run kind of thing for crypto people, which was cool. Hopefully, we do it again oh, in amazing. a couple of weeks at the Solana conference. But you know, overall, I saw many of the many of the Ethereum folks that I that I'd seen before. I saw Stani DJing from Aave.
0: No way, he's a DJ as well. What does that guy not do?
1: <laughs> DJs in crypto, unfortunately, we have four in the Chain Flip team, so um, expect a rave from us as well. But uh, it was a, it was a good time. Met some met some great people. But yet again. I went to the city. I did not go inside the conference. (laughs) I don't think I've actually been inside a conference for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, that's so fun. I mean, what are people buzzing about right now, right? Each year, each season, there seems to be a theme that people go, everything's about yield farming. Now I think everything's about NFTs, but over at Portugal, what were people talking about?
1: So there were two things. One which was really funny and one which is not that surprising. The not that surprising one was DAOs and and social DAOs or DAOs in general, whatever you want to call them. I'm not really a DAO kind of guy. I don't really understand it. I'm not Mm. that trusting of other people, I guess, when it comes to making choices about what happens with funds and that sort of thing. But you know, I met some people from Friends with Benefits there, which is one of the The larger, more well known DAOs. And so that was cool. But yeah, that was definitely a topic of discussion, along with NFTs and DeFi, of course. But the second thing, which was really funny, was pretty much every single American that I spoke with was talking about tax. I think there's been some changes in the US recently, which have meant that has become a a big, big topic. And I think those changes regarding the unrealized gains, I think there are a lot of people with very sweaty hands and um, thinking about coming to Portugal. Put it that way, but I I found it that you know it says a lot that we've come so far that we're not talking about the latest greatest thing. But how do we actually (laughs) protect what we've?
0: How do we protect the kingdom? Yes,
1: exactly. (laughs) It's a big change from twenty (laughs) seventeen when I first got involved, well professionally anyway.
0: Well, hey, on that point, you mentioned to me right before we press record here that you've been in crypto for a really long time, and by really long time. I think what you're saying is probably a decade. Is that true?
1: No, it's not even a decade. That's the crazy thing about it. Oh, wow. I bought Bitcoin in 2014, I think. So, you know, five years after it really started. So I don't feel, at the time, I didn't feel that I'd been in it for a long time. I felt that I was late to the party. But then almost everyone I meet says like, oh, you know, 17, 18, some very brave people in 19, (laughs) you know, so no, I've, I've been focusing on the space that whole time, basically, it's made up my entire adult life. I'm only 25 Mm -hmm. now. So um, yeah, for me, still being in high school, when that all sort of kicked off, it's sort of filled my whole adult context, which is maybe a good thing, maybe not. I I guess we'll we'll find out in the decades to come.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, what we're seeing now are all of these really interesting Web3 native roles, right? Or roles that Web3 have really enabled people to monetize on. You've got meme consultants, you've got NFT analysts, you know, market makers out of the traditional sense where you don't have to be with a high frequency trading firm over in Chicago or in London, for example, but you can be part of a team that has dedicated or allocated funds to DeFi. So you're a DeFi market maker, right? And allocating capital to to pools, what does that even mean? You know, so there are all these like native roles that we're starting to explore on the podcast, but curious to hear your thoughts on whether you know of other types of roles as well.
1: Well we actually have a, a role open at ChainFlip at the moment, which is professional crypto degenerate. <laughs> and I guess you could call it a marketing role, but you know, when you advertise a marketing role, you look at, you know, a lot of the, the people that come back in, they're talking about you know, B2B sales or like some SEO thing or whatever it is, some traditional marketing skills and you realize pretty quickly that in crypto the main way you do communications work is by sitting in discord and like understanding the the culture in the same way that a native does so yeah i mean really if you have been in the space for a while and you understand the culture of it and you have created or can easily pass some of the memes and you have a friendship circle in the space there's a really good chance that there is a a role out there for you doing basically exactly what you're doing now but with you know a broader team purpose in mind it's super funny realizing that crypto natives are really essential to a lot of project teams now is is something that's happened to me in the last year you know i've always been trying to bring more professionals into the space and and build the amount of human resources available to the space as a whole but you know, I think the reality is, is the really effective teams are using people that have been here for a couple of years already, at least. So, you know, that that's where we're shifting our focus to as well. I think the exception to that would be on the engineering side. You know, if you're just working on like web front ends or you're doing sure. some, you know, back end C++ or Rust or Go work or whatever. We've had a lot of success bringing in traditional engineers who maybe know what Bitcoin is. But you know, th- those engineers are sometimes the best hires you have because they come from a traditional computer science background. And if that's where you've come from, understanding how this blockchain thing works on a technical level is really not that crazy. It's just applied cryptography, basically. So that's successful. Everything else, though, whether it's business development or on the legal side, and especially on the communication side, it is a crypto native only game, in my view. Mm. Otherwise, you end up trying to do things that no project really wants to do like, I don't know, connect to the mainstream or some other abstract <laughs> term that was used a million times in 2016 to no avail. Yeah. So if you want a job <laughs> chainflip.io slash join us, I think, I don't know.
0: There you go. There you go. Plug in right there.
1: To anyone like <laughs> looking for a role, in the crypto space, I can recommend crypto.jobs as a website. There's a couple others as well, but the crypto job listing sites, there's a lot of remote roles out there now. That's not us where you focus, but there are a surprising number of opportunities which you may not realize that you are completely suitable for. Whether mm-hmm. you're a professional market maker or someone at a very high level in in an institution, there are many opportunities to win a lottery ticket by working for a for a crypto project rather than an established organization. So I think for all, part, all parties interested in that, it's definitely worth taking a look at.
0: Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, one word that is also crypto native is the word crypto economics. And I know that that's something you're passionate about, a field that merges a lot of different disciplines, right? So what is crypto economics in, in your words here? And how are you applying this emerging field to what it is that you're doing today over at Chainflip?
1: Well, I would say crypto economics is a made-up word that <laughs> describes token project people post-rationalizing their decisions about the behavior of their token for the most part. <laughs> but, you know, I've I've written about it a fair bit. I've actually got a piece coming out pretty soon about the the detailed breakdown of of chainflip's emission and incentive schedule, but I think crypto economics goes into more than managing token rewards because you're also talking about behavioral economics, what you want to see, and especially game theory. You know, what mm-hmm. what does security mean? To what extent does the token play a role in that? What what mitigating factors do you have to introduce to offset some risks that are presented to the network because of the decentralized nature of things? Yeah. So it, it can get really complex and it can get really, really hairy. But I, I would say, generally speaking, token economics is or crypto economics. No one can decide which is the correct term. I, I don't really <laughs> care. Is the art of balancing rewards and penalties through tokens to achieve the effects of a, of a protocol that, that is broadly speaking, mm. the game that's being played. I like that. I think, though, a lot of the time, people come into this without with, with different incentives in mind. You know, they they themselves are planning to build a token which they think will increase their own their own wealth is definitely one objective that people go in with i know certainly in my case that with chainflip obviously as the protocol developer i'm well placed to engineer it in such a way that can benefit me but you know my view on that is if i can engineer it so it benefits everyone that that'll you know result in a much better outcome but yeah some people come into this with maybe not nefarious intentions but certainly mm-hmm a shorter term view on what they want to achieve with certain incentive schemes and some people just haven't really thought too much about it and they just copy pasted from somewhere else which is a totally fine approach you know every every single one of these tokens that's out there now is a total experiment in this non-existent field of crypto economics that doesn't that crosses way too many academic disciplines to be taken seriously mm-hmm. as its own thing you know this is this is just a word that we made up to help us describe what we're trying to do here But yeah, it's a, it's a big topic though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So on this note, I would love to get your thoughts on whether you think SushiSwap in its V1 form, right? The original vampire attack, so to say, whether that can be considered copy-paste economics of the Uniswap V1 design. What are your thoughts there?
1: I don't think it was copy-paste on the economics. I think that's the one thing that they did change. They copy-pasted everything else. And they tweaked to the economics and they said, okay, we will produce these rewards for people that exercise this behavior, which is move the liquidity over to Uniswap. And then they I think they also at that time introduced other incentives as well, such as when people do swaps over sushi swap, that will actually have a positive impact on the sushi swap market itself, which is something that Uniswap never had. So they kind of introduced these rewards and these incentives Mm. and these benefits where they did not exist in Uniswap. So I think SushiSwap is actually a really good example of what token economics can do if done right. You know, it proves that a project can be threatened, not because of, not for technical reasons, not for improvements to user experience design or improvements to the end product, utility, or improvement in fees, or any not nothing ob- objectively about the product changed. The only thing that changed was the incentives behind it. And so I think mm. that really mm-hmm. that event really showcased the power of what token economics can do for better or for worse. You know, you can you can engineer this to have positive outcomes for a particular protocol, and you can also use it as a way to attack other protocols, which is pretty much what Sushi Swap did. Ultimately, it wasn't successful. Those incentives were not enough to take away the long-term dominance of, of Uniswap in the end. And I think that you know is largely a result of the fact that Uniswap did make technical changes to their product, which did right. change the user experience and did change the nature of what they were doing with the V3 AMM release. So, you know, I, I think there are multiple ways to be defensible. But if you're not considering token economics as an element of any given protocol's defensibility in the market, it's definitely something worth taking a serious look at.
0: We're going to bring that along with the topic of AMMs, automated market makers, all of that into our discussion now about Chainflip. So let's do the Chainflip ELI-5, right? How would you explain it to... My audience here, you know, many of them who are not technologists, who don't come from a deep engineering background, right, are not deep in the weeds on blockchain, but want to understand the use case, you know, are open to understanding the innovation of Chainflip, right? And so the main question they're asking is, what's it for me? You know, how can I benefit from using Chainflip? So let's kind of dissect that.
1: That's a really great question. And I think a question a lot of people miss, you know, what is the actual utility of the thing that you're building who who benefits from this and, and what do they what do they get out of it a lot of your listeners might not know what shapeshift was they might have heard the name but it was a really cool centralized brokerage service which would allow you to swap cryptocurrencies across multiple blockchains very very quickly if you think about what a centralized exchange is i think all of your listeners have probably used one at some point a centralized exchange will allow you to deposit assets on one chain And then you can do some trading on their platform and then you click a withdraw button and then coins appear on some other wallet on some other chain, right? That's the basic flow of using a centralized exchange. Chainflip is a decentralized service, which will allow you to essentially do the same thing, but with way less steps. So let's say I have Bitcoin and I would like some Ethereum. I don't actually have any Ethereum at this point. I have zero, but I've created a wallet. Mm -hmm. So I've got an Ethereum address and I've got a Bitcoin wallet with some Bitcoin in it. With Chainflip, instead of logging in to a, an exchange and doing KYC and setting up deposits and all that and placing limit orders and market orders or whatever the hell it is that I need to do, instead I can just go to the Chainflip website, I can click that I have Bitcoin and I'd like some Ethereum. I can tell it what my Ethereum address is and I click submit request for quote and then it will give me back an address which is a bitcoin address so i can send any amount of bitcoin to that address mm. and then after that transaction is confirmed chainflip will do some stuff in the background and then magically uh, you will have a an amount of ethereum that has been purchased for you appear in your ethereum wallet so from a ux perspective it's an extremely simple way to move assets between chains and within ecosystems as well you know we can extend this out to not just ethereum and bitcoin but Pretty much any of the major L1 ecosystems you can think of. There's no real limitation on what we can support. It's just a scalability issue with the number of chains that we have in the protocol at any one time. And we can also aggregate as well. So anything that's listed on Uniswap can be included in this. And then, you know, other DEXs as well, you know, you have PancakeSwap on BSC. And then as other ecosystems mature. And, and they develop their own liquid marketplaces with tokens of their own ecosystem. We can integrate those as well. So the idea is, mm. you'll be able to go from directly from something like Chainlink as an ERC twenty token to a which is a project within the Polkadot Relay Network, but is not on Polkadot itself. But for you as a user, that is just a one step process. You just send Chainlink, and then boom, a colour appears in your Polkadot mm-hmm. wallet. So. The user experience that we're offering here is is convenience that is why anyone would use this is it expensive probably a little bit more expensive than using a centralized exchange but due to the way that we've designed the amm we actually think that the pricing that we'll be able to offer users is extremely competitive even if the liquidity is fairly low just Mm -hmm. because of the way i mean i can get into how the batching mechanism and all that works it's a little bit more complex so i won't do it right now but you should get a fair price for the bitcoin that you send you'll end up with a fair amount of Ethereum based on the market within that sort of half-hour window that you're waiting for the Bitcoin to confirm.
0: I have tons of questions. We're going to bookmark that one point that you just made right there and kind of zoom out a little bit, right? So what you're saying here is that Chainflip is an innovative alternative for swapping tokens across blockchains. So knowing that Chainflip is an alternative is great, but I always want to compare it to what is the current problem? Right? Like through my user journey, what are some problems or challenges, rather, that I face? What actions do I take, number one? And because I have to take those actions, I face challenges. Those are things like using bridges, maybe, or wrapping tokens, right? These are actions that people are taking now. And what you're saying is, hey, do away with that, you know, with a really clean user interface. And a really neat UX to support that. So, can you talk a bit about the challenges that users face right now when swapping tokens across different blockchains?
1: Sure thing. I mean, to put it simply, the ecosystem is very, very fragmented, and it's not really a surprise. Blockchains are not designed to talk with each other. That is a feature of these networks and not a bug. You know, it, it is they are secure black boxes within themselves they are not supposed to be able to do all this crazy swapping integration stuff which is why users end up trying to use things like bridges if they're trying to stay doing it in a a decentralized way obviously one of the solutions to this is just outsource it to a middleman and use a centralized exchange who will do stuff on the back end that allows you to just you know up trade between arbitrary things but then of course not all exchanges support all tokens you're not having to move a lot of money around and you spend, you know, a couple of hours making a trade potentially and figuring out the best way to do that. And then you go to the decentralized side of things and things are even worse. <laughs> different ecosystems have different bridges, different bridges mm-hmm. support different tokens within those ecosystems. And if you're if you're new to a project, if you're new to a particular token or new to a particular ecosystem, it's next to impossible to work out what the hell you should be doing, what is safe to use, what is not. What your risks actually are when you're using these products. Yes. How mm-hmm. how exposed are you if I wrap my tokens here? You know, should I be holding that for a year or is, is that safe? Or like, you know, what which should I be doing here? And making all those security assessments and just even figuring out how some of these user and interfaces are supposed to work and what they actually can allow you to do is very nebulous. You know, a lot of these bridges are quite underdeveloped. A lot of them were quite rushed because of the insane demand that people have had for products like this. It makes complete sense. You know, I don't hold anyone responsible for that for that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. we've seen where this can go wrong. You know, the poly network six hundred and fifty million dollar hack, I think it was, bridging, I think it was what was it again? It was like an L two or something like that to Ethereum. Or was it bridging buying a smart chain to Ethereum? I can't quite remember, but it anyway, wow. there's a hell of a lot of money in there. The people parked in there to wrap assets on other chains. And mm-hmm. There were some issues with the way that it was built and someone was able to just drain the whole amount of money in there. And then anyone left with assets on the other chains or stuck in the bridge would have been screwed had the hacker not given back the funds. And that has happened half a dozen times this year. You know, there there are lots of risks um, with bridges, so maybe even more than centralized exchanges, which is funny coming from me having grown up in an era where it's like, oh, not your keys, not your coins kind of thing. But now it seems that, you know, centralized exchanges are almost a better bet because you have this security through obscurity thing going on where no one can really Mm. like openly figure out how to hack the exchange. So yeah, if you want to swap tokens between different blockchain ecosystems, it's really very hard. Very, very hard. It takes a lot of work. And I think... That is actually what is slowing down the adoption of and the expansion of new L1 and L2 ecosystems, you know, outside of, you know, the familiar and the comfortable being Ethereum, MetaMask, Uniswap. It's very challenging for people to navigate this environment unless you're a real degenerate. And, you know, there's lots of people out there that are making a lot of this stuff happen, a lot of this early adopter stuff of these new ecosystems, but you know, my hope is that through products like Chainflip, hopefully Chainflip more specifically, but you know, mm-hmm. someone someone will fix this problem, that friction goes away and we can actually just get on with the job of working out which of these ecosystems are going to be relevant going forward and using that information to build more interesting products, bring more utility to the space. Not that there seems to be any shortage of that right now, but scalability mm-hmm. is clearly a huge limiting factor. That I think everyone's feeling the crunch of right now. So this is a step in that direction.
0: Another one of my sponsors is Amber Group. Amber Group is an integrated crypto finance platform behind the popular Amber app, a crypto finance app that allows you to easily earn, swap, trade, and invest in crypto. You can earn up to 5% APY instantly by depositing assets to your wallet and receive daily interest payouts. This means earning interest 24-7 with no lockup. You can also customize fixed income investments between 1 and 360 days to enjoy up to 10% APR with flexible redemptions. Right now, new users can earn up to 16% APR on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USD stablecoins. Go and download Amber app at www.ambercrypto.com and earn interest on your own terms. Let's get into more of the chain flip architecture, right? So we've We've gone through a bit of what the challenge is, what problem you're trying to solve here for maybe not the everyday users who's just on ramped into crypto. But, you know, folks who have kind of been using different protocols and are kind of getting into a more advanced stage and they're experimenting potentially with different blockchains. Right. So hopefully that's that's all very clear to our listeners. But now. Let's get into the actual backend, you know, maybe this primitive of an automated market maker and talk about why that's necessary in order to actually solve this problem. But first, we can maybe talk about your thesis on how the AMM sort of ecosystem has evolved over the past, let's call it two years or so, and why there's a need for this current AMM design to exist. Under a chain flip,
1: AMMs are very new in the grand scheme of things. You know, when crypto first started, we kind of knew how exchanges worked. We kind of knew how order books would work. That wasn't really a surprise to anyone. But you know, Bancor I think first came up with the concept of an AMM in like 2015 or something. But it took ages to like make it happen. I think Uniswap can be rightfully credited for really bringing it to the fore. But even then, it took them like two years for anyone to really care about what it was. So you know, these things, it's taken a while for this to sort of get to where we are now, but it's evolved very, very quickly. Uh, Since that initial spike of recognition last year in 2020, um, Mm -hmm. when everyone just started using AMMs, I think people pretty quickly realized that this was a new way of doing trades. Is it a better way of of, of doing trading? I don't think so. I don't actually think an AMM is a better way to do a trade in an ideal world, but the reality is is that if we wanted to do trades on chain we can't use an order book it's just too heavy there's too much data this, it moves too quickly it's not built for the world that we occupy so I guess the AMM is the solution to that problem if you think about what a traditional order book has you know you probably have 10,000 orders in either direction and probably upwards of a hundred updates a second even on a small exchange for, for one order book and then you have an order book for every single pair that you want to support. That's a lot of data. You know that mm-hmm. and Any any of the major exchanges would crush the data throughput of Ethereum immediately. So if we wanted to do on-train trading with an order book, we would probably consume all of Ethereum with just that. Yeah. So it, it can't happen. It's not going to happen. That's why it never happened. That's why it won't happen. Instead, this AMM is a really nice way to sort of abstract away a lot of that really data-heavy stuff with Something more simple, you know. Put some money in a bucket here. Put some money in a bucket here, and we'll just spread it out across a curve. All right, and then we can use some maths to make that price calculation really, really efficient for anyone wanting to do a trade. And there's no limit orders. You know, it's just it's just market orders that.
0: Market so orders, right?
1: That was that was the main idea there. That was how we compressed down the concept of trading into such a very small amount of data processing, which allowed us to put it on chain and make something like Uniswap viable in the first place. I don't know if a lot of people really realized that that was the main goal in the first place. It was to be able to do trading on-chain in a very data-minimalistic way. The amazing thing about Uniswap v3 and the latest innovations that have happened is that we're actually starting to reintroduce a lot of the concepts that we took out of the original order book scheme in order to make it a more sustainable practice because an order book is ultimately know, as good as it's going to get as far as organizing a market goes. So now we have range orders in Uniswap, which allow us to allow individual liquidity providers to, rather than just accept the curve that Uniswap is, they can Mm -hmm. now actually define some parameters which will allow them to choose which chunks of that curve they want to influence. And then you you don't actually have a curve anymore. You have like a a general depth and and a general spread. Which looks right. now more like a traditional order book, but it doesn't work the same on the back end still. But still, only market orders, right? Um, technically, you could do a limit order if you're a really crazy person, but you would you <laughs> just wouldn't do that. So Uniswap V3 is great because it means that market, traditional market makers are now back in the driver's seat in that market. And I think when that when V3 was first announced, a lot of people were really annoyed. They were like. Don't, don't take my ability to yield farm away from me. Mm-hmm. But like I'm earning so many rewards by just by throwing some tokens in a bucket and people can trade with it. This is, this is great. I think now everyone kind of realizes that that is not really a hugely sustainable practice. You can't print tokens forever to fuel liquidity in your AMM, in your pool. That being said, forcing people to put money in a, in a defined curve means that you, if you're a token project, you can actually make people buy your token if the price is going down, if you incentivize them correctly, just by forcing them to hold money in a traditional liquidity pool. So this, these old school pools are not useless now. They have utility, which is maintaining liquidity of token projects, which is super important for those token projects. But I think, you know, the bigger markets, you know, USDT, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, the huge, huge markets, multi, multi-billion dollar markets. The traditional market makers are now very much back in the driver's seat. And that is super important because they are basically trying to get all of the demand. They're trying to connect all of the demand and all of the supply around the world all at the same time and match them together in a way. They're trying to, they're taking a bit of risk. There's an arbitrage going on here. There's money moving from Binance through to Uniswap through to, I don't know, some D tier exchange over here. They're all sort of in this interconnected web. Of professional market makers that allow you to access these markets at a much, much more tolerable price and a much more fair price at any given time across the board. So, you know, you see these big flash crashes and stuff. That stuff used to happen way, way more often before AMMs were around. AMMs have sort of slowed the game down a little bit. There's this sort of this latent liquidity there all the time now, but it's still in this professional market maker game and it, it's really benefited users in terms of being able to access those trades. And because there is so much liquidity now, because Mm. everyone's putting liquidity into these pools, I've actually noticed that the major markets are also now way less volatile than they used to be. You know, this is a crazy Mm -hmm. time in the market. There is more money in here now than there ever has been before. There's more mainstream awareness. There is a lot more going on. But I think part of the reason why we don't see these like Ten percent swings in either direction on any given day anymore is because there is so much liquidity now that you know those price differences are smoothed out over several days, more like they are in a traditional stock market now than you would traditionally see. Of course, China still bans Bitcoin every few months, and so that does what it does.
0: It's a recurring calendar reminder.
1: (laughs) Yes, you know you're in a bull run when China bans Bitcoin for the 19 millionth (laughs) time. So it's good, you know. Yeah. So AMMs have done a lot, but that doesn't really capture the full story of where we're going next.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about where we're going next then. So let's say this this project chain flip, right? Is the Coca-Cola cross-chain swaps. Who's the Pepsi?
1: Pepsi was invented before Coca-Cola. So I think you would probably rightly call it ThorChain because um, we will come out long after ThorChain has been out, but they they are building a similar product. or well, they have built a similar product on a backend level, but they have definitely gone for more of the traditional old school liquidity pool style with a fixed curve and everything is backed in their native token Rune, which in my opinion is fine if your main goal is to drive up the available liquidity for Rune because you force all of your LPs to hold at least half of it in, in the pools and be able to trade with it. So if you're a Rune holder, this is probably a good thing for you, at least in the near term. We have a very different approach to chain flip. We have an AMM design, which more closely follows that of Uniswap B3. So we have range orders. We can you know, adjust, LPs can adjust their liquidity bands, and all of the pairs are backed in USD instead. So all of it is dollar-based. This makes it really easy for professional market makers to hedge positions that they take um, and hedge risk that they take. And it also means that, you know, you don't have to buy a whole bunch of flip tokens and throw them in a liquidity pool just to help users trade crypto. If they want to trade flip, they can do that. But our view is that, you know, from a liquidity perspective, it's way, way easier to attract market makers that don't require insane token incentives to stay in the pool if you are backing yourself in USDC. But on the AMM side, Chainflip is super wacky. We do things very differently to what you would normally expect. We have a situation where on Uniswap, you know, people worried about people front-running them. In this case, we have designed it in such a way where the market makers are trying to front-run each other to capture the user's trade and give them the best price they can so they capture most of the liquidity fee. So there is front-running in Chainflip and there is MEV, but mm. it works in the user's favor rather than used to exploit the fact that they want to do a trade. So yeah, I don't think Chainflip and and ThorChain or Uniswap V2 are really comparable products in that way. We use an AMM Mm -hmm. as sort of primitive for this design, but because it's cross-chain and there's like confirmation times. So if I sell Bitcoin, people know that I've deposited Bitcoin half an hour before it will actually be traded because it has to confirm the AMM first. So in theory, you could just front-run the ever-living crap out of me if you wanted to. (laughs) if you can somehow like change the transaction order in the Bitcoin block or whatever. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of problems that are mitigated with the Chainflip AMM design. So we, we actually kind of had to go this way out of necessity because if we didn't, users would get absolutely wrecked and we'd have huge arbitrage problems and pricing would be super inaccurate. But um, no, it's different. It's very different. I can go into the, some of the details if you like.
0: Yeah, I mean, a, a question on my side is, how did you know that was a feature you needed to implement? You know, like you see a problem, you're like, all right, clearly it's not being solved now. Let's go ahead and solve that. How is this introducing front running, you know, by market makers on the platform or within the AMM? How did you kind of conclude that this was the way to solve that issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess when we were designing Chainflip, we noticed some pretty serious problems. You know, we, if you just start with Uniswap as the base. Your first problem is is, okay, well we can't do atomic trades because the swap is not executed when the user makes the transaction. The swap happens when the validators decide to make it happen, and that will be you know a number of blocks after the deposit actually occurs so already some of the fundamental assumptions that make uniswap work are out mm-hmm. the window you know we're doing this all off chain, so you know that doesn't really make sense as a primitive. The other problem is so okay, so if I can see. A Bitcoin user coming along and he's deposited like 10 Bitcoin to sell them. And I know that the validators will do that trade in half an hour or in about half an hour, whenever that, that third block comes through or that second block comes through, I can probably exploit that situation by placing counter trades on, on another side, on the USDC side or updating my liquidity position to basically shortchange that guy and give them a, a much worse price because. The Ethereum block time is, you know, a few seconds versus Bitcoin's 10-minute blocks. And then our own state chain is different as well. So if we just left it as it was, everyone would have hated the experience. They would have got terrible pricing. People would mm-hmm. have taken their money and the user experience would be pretty bad. So we had to think of ways to get around that. And Where we landed was two things. First of all, we do uh, swap batching. So let's say there's 100K of trades going in in the buy direction and 100K of trades going in the sell direction. In that scenario, let's say there's a two-minute window that we wait for batches to occur on, say, a Solana USD pair, for example. We Mm -hmm. do trades every two minutes. So we have buy stacking up on one side and buy stacking up on the other, uh, sell stacking up on the other and then we basically just mash them together rather than doing them one at a time and causing slippage every time we do it. We just mash them together. So there might be a bit of price direction in one, one way. That, that'll, that'll be realized as slippage. But for the most part, on average, all of these users could end up experiencing no slippage at all. If there is someone willing to make the counter trade on the other side and there's demand going in the other direction, we can actually cancel out a lot of slippage. The other thing with the front running, the market makers front running thing going on is if I place like a hundred Bitcoin sell order, the liquidity providers can update their range orders within a few seconds. So they have half an hour to go find a hundred Bitcoin to sell to this person. And if they can do that on other exchanges, like say Binance, they start placing some, some buys or they start opening a hedge position on a derivatives exchange or something like that. They can totally risk free, change their range order so that they are like, They have moved their price up past all the other liquidity providers and they will capture all of the liquidity fees of that user. So that user will now get the best price they can or be like it'll match the best rate that they can find across all of these different exchanges. And that market maker will risk free pretty much because they've hedged it, capture up to 0.25 bips on that trade, which is way more than your typical spread that a market maker will capture on the traditional exchanges, plus any other spread you can find along the way. So we've sort of created this dynamic there where as long as people are willing to place trades on chain flip, market makers will compete with each other to provide the best pricing for mm-hmm. those liquidity fees. So that that's kind of the dynamic that we realized that would happen if we Allowed for the updating of range orders. And we also, because it's off chain, we don't, we're not really limited in the same way that Uniswap is. We can actually allow people to have multiple range orders at the same time and update them through a simple API rather than through Ethereum transactions. So this is much more like traditional market making than anything else from a market makers perspective. And with the batching thing as well, that offsets a lot of the issues too. So with these two things in combination, we've designed a very novel AMM where what we've actually built is more like a sort of decentralized brokerage marketplace rather than an AMM. Mm. Of course, anyone can still provide liquidity and all that kind of thing. And that will definitely play a a part in that. But, you know, for some of those big trades that would have a really big impact on the performance of the AMM, we can actually offset that by allowing market makers to do this and to sort of fulfill this competitive brokerage role where they're competing to grab liquidity from other places and bring it, not bring it to Chainflip, but use it on Chainflip, if that makes sense. So they do the trade and then they go away and they rebalance their portfolio and they come back and redeposit more assets into Chainflip once they've sort of, you know, sorted out their accounting on the back end or whatever. But it kind of gives us ammunition to be able to fulfill really big trades, even if we have, you know, like $20 million in the liquidity pool it doesn't sound like a lot. But in theory, that means we can support trades of like five, six million bucks. And it would work if the market makers are playing playing ball. So, yeah, with minimal slippage. So that's mm-hmm. pretty cool in my, in my view.
0: Yeah. I mean, give us some numbers in terms of what the TVL is like, how much volume has gone through chain flip, right? You know, because those are really interesting statistics, I think, to capture this, this new primitive that you're talking about and, you know, kind of get people to visualize how the growth has been as well for chain flip.
1: Well, the growth has been from zero to zero because we still haven't launched it yet.
0: Oh, it's not. Oh, not launched yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Got it.
1: We have a public test net program starting on December 15th. This will be the first time we put this cross-chain technology mm. out to people in the general public. First time we release some code as well. We've been working on this for nearly two years now. So, you know, it's a long time coming. The swapping itself we expect to go live sort of midway through next year so yeah this is this is a really challenging piece of software. It is completely new it shares no code with existing projects except for the substrate blockchain framework and there are tons of new ideas in here that have had to be implemented from scratch so it has mm-hmm. it has taken some time
0: got it so so it's been in beta up until now basically or or not. In- not even, it's just being developed right now.
1: We're in late R&D, I guess you could call it. We, we're, gotcha. we're this close to a test net. That's where we're at. Sorry, gotcha. sorry to let you down. I'd love to tell you that we had three four 400 million TVL, and we were <laughs> you know, competing with Binance and pricing, and we had you know, 20,000 daily active users, and we were doing you know 300 million volume a day or more. That would be really sweet. But that is, that is what is coming, I hope.
0: All things to work towards, yeah. Well, one thing that you guys have launched as your dev team has been I'm sure very very busy are these very fun flippy NFTs. And you guys have written about this. <laughs> and I know it's probably been memefied, but let let's talk about that. You know, you you said that you wanted to give and I'm I'm quoting whoever wrote this article about the flippy NFTs, you wanted to give early users an artifact of a project that is going to change the game. So, I mean, talk about the the reason for creating NFTs Lots of people seem to be doing this and and how that has actually maybe helped you in terms of community engagement, you know?
1: Well, as you said it, you know, everyone's doing it. We had to jump on the bandwagon, too. I mean, we didn't want to be left out or anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, we literally said in the blog post, like, what are these NFTs used for? First thing, probably nothing. Nothing. Probably nothing. These are are just some JPEGs that we got an illustrator to help us out with. This is a mainly ex- mainly an exercise for the communications team at Chainflip. We do realize that we have been egging people on and telling us about this amazing product that we're building, and you know it's going to change the game. La 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 la. All, all you know, the last forty-five minutes of conversation that we've just had. <laughs> yeah, we we're done. We're done. Uh, nothing really that users can actually interact with yet. And so,
0: mm.
1: you know, we thought this would be a fun way to do something that is you know, topical, relevant, you know, we want to show people that we are involved in the space. Generally, we're keeping our finger on the pulse. We're not just some crazy people working on a thing that is disconnected from the reality of what people are actually interested in. So yeah, we made some JPEGs and we put them online and people (laughs) are buying them for money. We're not selling them. You mint them for free, but uh, apparently they're worth like 120 bucks each and there's going to be 5,000 of them. So Look, I'll be honest with you. I had never owned an NFT until I think it was yesterday. I never <laughs> used OpenSea either. And I fat fingered what I was doing on OpenSea and ending up selling my Flippy for half of what It oh. cost me to sell it in gas fees. So I was quite upset that I did that. I did want to sell it because it, it was a bad Flippy, not a good Flippy. I wanted a different <laughs> a Flippy. So in terms of how it's gone for our community, it's been... Very successful, I would say. We gained about 2,000 Twitter followers, 20% increase, which is great. Our Discord numbers tripled, but I think, to be honest with you, quite a lot of that was probably bots before we put in some capture stuff to sort of regulate the behavior of some particular people. So there's now 15,000 users in our discord i think probably about 3 or 4000 of those are not real people but you can definitely tell that this has had a huge impact on the community but i don't, right. know, I don't know if it's going to pay off you know we've just got a whole <laughs> bunch of nft people in our defi project and i i, I wonder when they're going to figure out that you know we actually don't really care about these nfts that much
0: <laughs> it's something fun and playful you know
1: yeah Flippy. Flippy was a, a bit of an internal meme that came about because a uh, Hugo, art designer, said, wouldn't it be cool if we had a helper like from MS Office User Interface who's called Clippy and he is a paperclip.
0: Yes, oh, I remember that. Word doc, Microsoft.
1: <laughs> Flippy is Clippy's son, bastard child, and he has <laughs> 5,000 friends who look like him as well. So we have appropriated Microsoft's intellectual property, <laughs> um, we have to put our own logo on it and then we have, we but we didn't sell them. We didn't make any money doing this. In fact, we spent like 70 grand on gas fees doing this. So you're welcome, Microsoft. It's free advertising.
0: <laughs> Incredible. That's so much fun. I mean, that's what I love about the space. It's obviously there's the serious work that we all have to do to build our projects and protocols and, you know, make the ecosystem flourish. But, you know, there, there's also an an air of playfulness that we kind of bring to this world of finance right financial applications which historically have just been you know people in suits and ties telling other people what to do and how to do it and this is the status quo right now we're kind of bring a new dimension and making you know finance fun and you know having people figure out ways to earn yield in a really interesting way right so on this note all right what is one thing that exists in crypto today As we're speaking, 2021, that you did not think for one second back in 2014 when you got in would exist.
1: Oh, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Flippy NFTs. I mean, (laughs) there's there's so many things. I didn't expect any of this to happen. I didn't expect people to be buying and selling JPEGs on chain. I didn't expect them to be trading on chain. I didn't expect them to be borrowing or lending. None none of this was really in the scope of the discussion at the time back then. It was all just kind of you know fuck the government kind of kind of vibes going on left right and center and that is definitely mm. not the conversation that is being had now this is this is now internet money in a way in, in the way that i think really captures what that means you know we talked just now about how we're making finance fun i don't know that we're making finance fun we're just dragging it kicking and screaming into the internet world and of course there's a <laughs> bunch of memes here so of course it's going to be like that but you know that that really Highly composable, sort of generally chaotic good energy of of the internet has really gone into crypto as well, and so you know all of these financial tools now have been replicated on blockchains, and all of these new primitives mm-hmm. have that have been created to allow us to do things that had never before been possible without ridiculous amounts of paperwork or, you know, government regulation or trusted bodies of people investing pools of funds in random stuff like that just sounds like a nightmare. But you know, the internet money world has has made that not only possible but incredibly appealing to a lot of people. And yeah, it's not going to stop. You know, this is mm-hmm. this is I think the last couple of years have been really exciting for me. They've they've really sort of reinstilled a, a sense of hope in my mind about what we can actually do here and whether or not it will be positive for the world. You know, we're not looking to tear things down here. We're looking to build stuff that is compatible with the digital era, I guess, and moving away from a complete, there will always be reliance on institutions, but I think in in many examples the internet has just been a case of demonstrating that we do not need them per se and we can actually Mm -hmm. build infrastructure outside of, trusting you know a few individuals who are corruptible and maybe not malicious per se but perhaps not always competent because that's just how people are and building something that you know sort of sidesteps all those issues and gives us new tools to play with that can incentivize economic behavior and i think that's ultimately what this is all about this is all about enabling new types of economic behavior that can instigate new areas of growth in the in the global economy in general, um, and create, you know, new paradigms of political motivations beyond what we've seen in in the 20th -hmm. century. So there are a lot of possibilities and you know, I could get super, super, you know, high energy libertarian on you, but I'm I'm not, I'm not (laughs) going to do that because I'm not really anti-establishment. I'm just really proud of what we've done uh, over the last few years, even though it's been a complete shit show from start to finish and it's not over yet. We've actually Mm. done some really cool stuff as an industry. So I'm very happy about
0: that. Well, excited to catch you kind of right before, you know, this, this rise, uh, hopefully very soon. But, you know, all of what you just said, especially towards the end, it all ties back to your original passion for crypto economics, right? Designing and figuring out and experimenting with different designs, you know, of how humans interact. Right. And that's ultimately, you know, why this conversation for me has been so interesting is because we've got to talk not just about, of course, chain flip and the different features of the AMM that you've built and are currently building, but also just why does crypto matter? Right. Why does this matter to you as a human behind this project? You know, we're, we're not all coder monkeys here, just creating something for, for no reason. So, very, very purposeful story, Simon. Thank you so much for coming on Crypto Unstacked. I know our audience will really enjoy this conversation. Look to uh, look look forward to having you back on the show, uh, you know, soon once this thing is actually launched.